This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of New Books Network. This is Morteza Hajizadeh, your host from Critical Theory Channel. Today, I'm honored to be speaking with Dr. Jessica Klanderud. Dr. Jessica Klanderud is Associate Professor of African and African-American Studies and History at Berea College. She's here to talk to us about a great book she published with uh, the University of North Carolina Press called Struggle for the Street, Social Networks and the Struggle for Civil Rights in Pittsburgh. Jessica, welcome to New Books Network. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, before we start, can you please introduce yourself to our listeners? Tell us a little about yourself and how you became interested in this uh, area, African and African-American studies. And more importantly, why you decided to write a book uh, about um, about social networking struggle for civil rights in Pittsburgh? Sure. So... I am, of course, Jessica Klanderud. I am now the director of the Carter G. Woodson Center for Interracial Education at Berea College, in addition to being an associate professor of African and African-American studies and history. Uh, I get I get a lot done. Um, and this work came out of my dissertation work. I really have always been interested in the intersections of African-American life and working class culture. And so not so much the ideas of how people interact uh, on the day-to-day interactions in their neighborhood, in their life. And I found that, honestly, a lot of what I was interested in wasn't being reflected in the literature that I was reading as a part of my PhD program. So uh, this project developed out of some of that, uh, a little bit of reading of August Wilson's Century Cycle, most of which is set in the city of Pittsburgh, and a wonderful engagement with the photographs of Charles Teeny Harris, who was a Black photographer of the Hill District, and getting an opportunity to see, uh, literally, the people on the streets of the neighborhood and to kind of develop um, a bit of an eye for what that place looked like and felt like and um, worked to kind of make that vision come alive in my history telling as well um and uh in this book there's this there's this part in uh in the book that that I, that, that I loved and i think i should have this sentence framed and put it somewhere in my room i would really appreciate if we could talk about this quote i'll just read it here cities are nothing without the streets the arteries through which goods people and ideas flow neighborhood by neighborhood block by block the city streets are where politics begins um, can you talk about this, please? What do you mean when you talk about the city street as a site of politics? Yeah, you know, this idea came a bit out of a, a critique that came out of the literature. So some of the literature on the city of Pittsburgh in Pennsylvania argues basically that the geography of the city, which it's an Appalachian city, it's a mountain city. When you visit the city of Pittsburgh, you are going uphill and downhill and around corners and into hollers and valleys. So it's important, the geography of the place. But 
one of the arguments was that that geography disrupted the politics, that it made it more difficult for civil rights uh, to succeed there because of this kind of geographical separation that kept people apart. And as I was researching, I found that that wasn't the case, that the streets themselves became the literal avenues that were moving ideas, that were moving people, um, and that they were not sort of fixed lines on a map, but instead were sort of spaces of nuance and context and a flow that really needed to be illuminated as a part of what the story I was trying to tell was. And so this idea of all politics is local, right? Everything begins at your neighborhood, at what do the people around me need? What do we value? And those become the things that become important as a part of your thinking of what the role of government can be and should be. And so this idea that politics really begins on your neighborhood stoop and by talking to the people that live near you, uh, that was something that I really found to be true, um, especially in the Black community, that these streets were feeding people and ideas and really the kind of genesis of politics into other neighborhoods and into other spaces in the city. Fascinating. And and now there's the, there, when I just watched the media and there are a lot of, let's say, political protests around the world, and that's actually where the de- democracy starts. It's people, working class people in the street asking for their rights. Um, yeah, 100%. Yeah. It hasn't changed a whole lot. It still is, you know, anytime you see a social uprising of people demanding their full citizenship rights, their full human rights, the streets are the sites of those protests. And I think they're the site on purpose. It's not an accident that that's where people gravitate to to make that claim. Mm, yeah. I'm I'm originally from Iran myself. And as you might have heard in the media in the past few months, there have been a lot of protests in the country, women asking for their rights. And I think it was a couple of years ago where again, there were some protests and it's it's obviously illegal to do that. And the government, in order to control that a little bit, tried to uh, sort of contain the protest. So what they proposed was that if, I mean, it was a silly thing to say in general there, but they said that, okay, if people have any demands, we can go to this sports stadium, which can fit like 12,000 people, come here and then talk about your demands, which everybody laughed at. And when I when I picked up the book, the title of your book, I was reminded of what people were saying back then in my country. I said, well, streets is where Apollo, that's where we go for our demands. We don't go into a football stadium, just sit on the chairs in a contained space, just talk. This is not how people get democracy. Right. And honestly, um, it's happened here in the United States as well. Uh, when you look at the Unite the Right rally that happened in 20, what's that, 2017, I believe, mm-hmm. uh, in Charlottesville, um, Virginia, after that, where a protester, Heather Hare, was killed uh, by a vehicle that hit protesters that were in the streets. A number of states in the United States worked to pass legislation that would uh, either allow for motorists to hit protesters that were in the streets, trying to criminalize uh, blocking of street spaces or prohibiting traffic from moving through um, because of some of the protests that we saw in Ferguson, Missouri, and other places. So clearly, streets are the place that you go to make these kinds of demands on the powers of government. But they're also increasingly a place that I think people are trying to uh, legislate out of contention there. Like you said, I mean, it's quite obvious if you if you can send everyone to some sort of sports stadium, it becomes a place of containment quite easy. Um, it, it is not a place that allows for the full expression of uh, what I call later in the book street democracy. Mm. So that's something that I think is is clearly becoming a concern of those who wish to limit uh, the full expression of democratic rights by mm. folks in, across all classes and races. Yeah, well, I didn't know about that. But you're right. I live in Australia now, and I think I, I don't know if it was legislated or not, but I heard that they were trying to make it illegal for climate activists to to block these streets. 
uh, a couple of years ago in one state in New South Wales here in Australia, but I don't think it passed through the parliament. But that was again proposed by the uh, by some politicians. No one the politicians are always afraid of streets. Uh, yeah, they're they're dangerous yeah. places. They are for them, <laughs> and you rarely see them there. <laughs> uh, let's go back to the book. In in your book, you talk about well, why did you focus on the Hill District, this area from uh, from Pittsburgh to talk about? Sure. Well, one of the reasons that I focus on the Hill District is I, I mentioned a bit in the introduction. One of the things that drew me to this project was the um, work of the playwright August Wilson. So August Wilson was a black playwright uh, from Pittsburgh, wrote a number of plays about the city. And one of the things that I found interesting is that Wilson's work describes a neighborhood that I did not see reflected in much of the literature I was reading about uh, Pittsburgh either. So it was a bit of a, is this neighborhood more like what Wilson was writing or less like it? Like, let's you know, get into it and see what what was really going on there. But additionally, residential segregation was very high in Pittsburgh, like it was in most urban cities in the North, in the United States. And so as Black people began to move into the city in larger numbers during the early part of the Great Migration, they mostly got filtered into the Hill District. And so that was the neighborhood that they came into. So it's also interesting. Um, it's not so much a focus of this book, but the Hill District was not a primarily Black neighborhood until part of the way through um, my story that I'm told. And so you've got this neighborhood in transition. Um, you've got uh, white, mostly Eastern European folks moving out of the neighborhood. Uh, it's changing over in a lot of specific ways. And so being able to sort of look at how this transformation is happening in part, and also then to kind of look at how a neighborhood forms, like how does a neighborhood culture become a thing? How does, you know, later in time now, the Hill District is seen as a blighted neighborhood, seen as a primarily Black neighborhood. Um, it's seen as a place full of crime. Uh, you know, perhaps later we could talk about how those transformations have happened and continued. And uh, in my mind, some of the ways which they're very um, lacking in context and, you know, wrong, I would even say. Um, but that that neighborhood really drew my my focus and attention for that reason, because it was such a fascinating shift to watch in the micro of block by block, you know, a street would become primarily African-American where before it was not. Mm. Um, and and one, one, one part of the book, I mean, one aspect of the book that I really loved was the, the discussing the class tension between, even within the African-American community as well. So you talk about this democratic shift and how, sorry, demographic shifts and how it uh, created less tension on the streets after World War the First, and also how African-American from middle class use the streets for education and social norms, but the working class use this space as, as, as a site of employment or entertainment. Can you talk about this shift and also how uh, middle class and working class African-Americans use the street differently? Yeah, I think one of the things that I found the most interesting um, was this idea of how you have this influx of African-Americans coming into the city as a part of the Great Migration. Most of them are coming from the South. They are coming from positions where they are pretty firmly in the working class. Some are in the working poor. Uh, Pittsburgh had a decent size African-American community prior to the Great Migration that were well established. Um, at the very beginning of this migration, there were tensions, <laughs> significant tensions between uh, the middle class and the working class, um, and they were cultural ones. They really were around things like religion, uh, types of worship, the idea of being an old Pittsburgher, someone that was from the city before the migration versus, you know, a new migrant. Like some of these tensions just were primarily in 
social types of arrangements. Um, but what really begins to develop is an idea that working class people are primarily using informal types of relationships and middle class and elite folks are gravitating more towards formal types of relationships. So if you think about these social networks being things like your fraternal orders and societies, your um, you know fraternities, sororities, those sorts of things, your church memberships, those would be formal types of social networks where the informal social networks are your neighbors, your friends, your you know folks that all live on the same block, folks that maybe go to the same uh, jitney stand or perhaps go to the same uh, numbers uh, bookie. Uh, so, so all of these informal connections uh, are what begin to sort of bridge some of those tensions at first uh, because the street spaces become this place where you're just spending a lot of time outside of your home. Uh, one of the things that we definitely can see in the record, the housing stock in the Hill District was primarily rental-based uh, with landlords that did not live in the neighborhood. And so um, what that meant was you just didn't have a lot of interior space in your home. That was not a thing that was common. So you spent a lot of time outside. You, you know, played on the stoop when you were a kid. You played in the street when you were a kid. And so for working class kids, especially, the street space was a place of entertainment. It was their playground. And what you see a lot of that I found really fascinating is all of the arguments by middle-class reformers who are arguing for formal structured playgrounds to be created because of the dangers associated for Black children to be playing on the streets. Uh, but then when you talk to former residents of the Hill District, what did everybody do? They played on the streets. So it's a pretty interesting uh tension that developed over time um, because this idea of formal, structured, you know, approved by some outside body that was usually white um, was something that was very much desired by the middle class um, in many ways and really trying to feed into that idea of respectability. Um, but for the working class folks, uh, that was not the case. It was not something they were not looking for respectability uh, in the same way. And uh, can you also talk about the social networks? What were the social networks that were created? And this this tension between class also created uh, sort of conflict in these social networks as well. Yeah. So the social networks really begin by as you move to the city. You have to find work. You have to find a place to get your hair done. You have to find a grocery place. You have to find, you know, the people that will help you meet your needs, whatever those needs are. And so you begin to create a network of associations. And it was really, really common in the working class to find, you know, a group of people that you felt you could connect with in one way or another. Um, and then created out of that a sort of system of reciprocity and exchange. So you would, if you did a favor for one of your friends, they would do a favor for you uh, and, and likewise. And so when these systems were mixed, though, when you had middle class, elite, and working class people all with the same social network, it helped kind of create a common neighborhood feel. Um, over time, what begins to happen is you start to see middle class and elite people at least believing that they can remove themselves from these social networks without consequence. So they can create their own systems of social network wherein they only have elite and middle class folks within those networks. And they no longer need working class people to be a part of their social network in the same way. And, and that's sort of a shift that happens over time. Um, and once that shift is complete, you see middle class and work, middle class and elite people really retreating from street spaces, not spending the same kind of time there, and ultimately defining those spaces as violent and vice ridden. And um, uh, uh, this, this book has a lot of 
fascinating chapters. And uh, as I went through the book, uh, it never ceased to amaze because like when you move to the next chapter, you talk about the class tension. And uh, then you move to the next chapter and you talk about gender and how, how women from different classes use the streets differently from the middle class uh, uh, and also the working class. Uh, can you talk about uh, that aspect of, of, of this uh, of this book and how how women from different classes use the streets differently in Pittsburgh? Sure. Uh, this is sort of actually where the project started a little bit. Uh, this chapter mm -hmm. uh, really means a lot to me because it was some of the first research that I really found that I felt was new and not something that I had, had read before uh, because frequently when you're doing working class history, it's difficult in a way because you're always seeing the resources, the, the written materials, usually from government organizations that are doing outreach into working class and working poor communities. And one of the questions that always popped in my head as a working class historian was, yeah, but did, did they follow all the prescriptive literature that you were saying about how they should run their life? Because in most of the working class communities I've ever been a part of, uh, that is not always the case. So this question of, you know, did did working class women really abide by all of the large amounts of dictates that were coming to them about how to raise their children and be better moms and raise better babies? And and the the honest question is no. There was there was a lot of resistance and pushback about um that sort of a thing. And, and I think the piece that struck me the most was how these women were using social networks to meet their childcare needs. Um, and this is something that uh, came up actually again and again in my oral history interviews. Uh, people were used to having someone in the neighborhood that was their, you know, part-time caretaker. And so when they would come home from school, there would be one or two women per block that were basically in charge of keeping an eye on all the children until the parents came home uh, in the evening. And, and that kind of a social arrangement was just an understood part of the community. And many of the folks I talked to talked very much about um, the interest and engagement of their neighbors when they were children in terms of how they were doing in school and what they planned to do for their future. And just also knowing that if they, you know, stepped one foot out of line, that they would have three phone calls to their parents before they got off of work or likewise. So it was really interesting to see that um, that idea of kind of a social arrangement for child care. Mm. And it certainly was not something that was shared by middle class reform minded women um, especially those that were social workers, because this kind of an arrangement was not meeting the kind of very structured requirements that they had for what childcare should look like. And it's interesting because it really has this issue where all of the reports and social science that was coming out at the time was talking and advocating for a single um, or a stay-at-home mother. And Yet at the same time, and often in this, you know, next paragraph, they would say, but Black women are working. They don't have access to day nurseries and childcare the way white women do. And we can't have it both ways. We can't have women working and have no childcare. Like that's not a thing that will actually be functionable um, for our society. So it's a pretty interesting uh, tension there. Uh, because it was Black women sort of against other Black women in some ways. But at the same time, you saw a lot of care uh, to try to make arrangements in space that would work well for everyone. It just became a bit of a tense situation. And do you think uh, patriarchal conceptions of what women should do or whether women should work outside or should be housewife also played a role or were reinscribed in the use of streets by women? You know, I think sometimes, yes. It's this, this whole thing is a little bit complicated because for middle-class Black men, the status of being able to make a patriarchal claim 
and say, well, my woman, my wife stays at home and does not have to work um, was absolutely a status symbol. It was. Um, we see lots of evidence of Black women uh, using their power as hostesses to really reinforce uh, those elite and middle-class values and, and being very, very invested in uh, the concept of respectability. Uh, and so a lot of that comes through in my conversation about uh, Frog Week. So this is a, a celebration that happens every year by the frogs, which stands for friendly rivalry often generates success. And it's a, a fraternal or order um, in Pittsburgh for, uh, let's say, upwardly mobile Black men. And, you know, their wives were the hostesses of this event, and it was quite uh marketed in the in the Pittsburgh Courier as the kind of social event of the season. But working class women did not have a stigma about working. Um, that was not something that was considered a problem. Uh, they very much spoke out about the role and the important role that they played in family economics. And so I think that, you know, that was some, that patriarchal conception of the proper role of women, quote unquote, was something that could be used, but also could be subverted in really kind of important ways. And it depended a bit on the day, which direction people were going primarily in the neighborhood um, and on which street you were on, because the ones that were more working class focused had a lot of respect for women that were able, that were working. Um, how about, let's talk about how... Uh, Working class Americans created a sense of community, and their idea of that community was uh, was camaraderie, belonging, reciprocity. Whereas the middle class people con conception of uh, that community was based on the politics of respectability, which you brought up at the beginning a little bit. Uh, that I'm really interested to know more about how they conceived the idea of a community differently based on their the social class they came from? Yeah. One of my favorite sources uh, that I used a lot in this writing of this book uh, was a column that appeared in the Pittsburgh Courier um, from 1923, I think, until 1961 or two. Uh, and it was written by John L. Clark, and it was called Wiley Avenue. And this is, again, one of the first things I read through. And John L. Clark was kind of a fascinating person, honestly. Um, so he wrote about the street culture of Wiley Avenue. So Wiley Avenue was one of the main thoroughfares of the Hill District. Um, it had, had everything on it. And the idea of being a regular on the avenue uh, was something that was really kind of a valuable status, uh, not in the class sense, in the community sense. And so this was the place for numbers runners and sex workers and folks that wanted to have a good time and really liked to go listen to the great jazz and the Crawford Avenue Grill. So these spaces were places where people could really build a bit of an idea of themselves that was situated in a place. So that idea of being a Wiley Avenue regular was based on camaraderie. It was your your buddies you went drinking with on the weekends. And also this idea that you helped each other out. You know, the regulars helped each other if there was a there was uh, for example a death in the family of one of the regulars and they needed to travel outside of town and everybody pulled their resources to help get this person back to, I think, Mobile to bury uh, their family member. And, you know, there are many stories like that um, that appeared in Clark's column. And so this kind of locational site for developing, you know, a social network that was a really important part of this neighborhood. And it wasn't just Wiley Avenue. There were, you know, little micro neighborhoods within the Hill District as well that functioned in similar ways. Um, but I think the middle class 
it's it's sort of difficult because uh, one, I would say that I think a lot of the politics of respectability has been misinterpreted some scholars um, because it is really clearly a tactic. It is something that middle class folks use because they think it will get them access to power with white people. It is not um, something where you're commonly, where you're tracked in it or that you're always using it. It's that it's sometimes the tool that you use because if being respectable will get you a little bit further along, you will use that. And so what I think I saw more is people were using it sometimes and not others early in the period that I'm studying. And as we get closer to the civil rights movement, respectability becomes this tool that almost takes on a life of its own in a way that becomes harder to say, oh, well, I'm going to try a different tactic. It becomes like the main tactic of choice. Uh, But I think understanding that politics of respectability is, especially for women, is always a tactic. It isn't the only one that can be used, but it is definitely one that often gets used, uh, especially by middle-class women. And, um, but the, the, the conception of a street itself, you know, it's, I guess it's something universal that we tend to think of street as a place ridden with, that is crime ridden, it's dangerous and violent, especially at night. And this kind of idea, I guess, gets spread with urban renewal, and that's something you have talked about in the book as well. So mm-hmm. uh, how was this narrative resisted or challenged by black workers who use this street as a place to build their networks and community? Yeah, for black workers, the streets were not necessarily violent or uh, crime-ridden. Uh they were workplaces. And I think that's the other thing that we don't always think about too, is this is, you know, often a place where people go to find work and to do work. Um, Also, I personally don't make much of a distinction between work that is legal and work that is technically illegal. Uh, It often depends on what's being enforced at that particular time. It's still work. It doesn't. (laughs) So all of that uh, means that working class people resisted that narrative quite effectively, actually, for a long time. What happens with urban renewal that gets really interesting uh, from my point of view is the city of Pittsburgh and other cities that did urban renewal do uh, basically were looking for a way to use eminent domain legislation. And the most convenient and easiest way to use eminent domain legislation is to uh, begin to label an area as blighted or crime-ridden or in need of intervention by the state in some particular way. And so what I think was really interesting, and one of the breaks that I saw between the working class and the middle class pretty distinctly, was the Hill District actually has three different areas. There's a lower hill, a middle hill, and an upper hill. And when the lower hill was targeted for urban renewal, a few folks in the middle class raised questions like, this isn't really right, you know, whatever. They were a little bit concerned about it, but many were on board and they were believing that this was going to, you know, bring jobs and bring, uh, they, they built a hockey stadium, for example, uh, right in the middle of the lower hill district. It's actually a little bit wild because if you're there in person, uh, Wiley Avenue, you can find it at the bottom of the hockey stadium complex. Then there's a giant parking lot and a highway and then uh, like a cliff. And then Wiley Avenue starts up again on the other side of all of that. So it's like they literally dropped this hockey stadium down in the middle of the street and just cut it off and kept going. Um, so they clearly, you know, just kind of deposited this in the middle of the Lower Hill District. But there was some thought like this is going to bring jobs. This is going to bring economic growth. And when that actually didn't pan out, um, so the promised jobs never really showed up or they were not given to Hill District folks. Um Building trades was actually uh, another area in Pittsburgh that was incredibly segregated. It was very difficult for a long time for Black um, tradespeople to get into building trades work in Pittsburgh. And 
Uh, I hope someone's doing that research, but it's it's a really, really important story. Um, but so the lower hill kind of got urban renewal without a lot of contention. Then suddenly the city starts eyeballing a little further up the hill. And that's when middle-class folks start feeling a little bit threatened uh, because the wealthier you were, the higher you lived on the hill. And so when they started encroaching on elite black space, then that became a concern that we were going to have to put a stop to this urban renewal uh, issue. And by then, the working class folks were like, oh, you had no problem when they were bulldozing our streets. Um, but now suddenly you're concerned about it when they're coming for yours. Uh, so that's kind of where the tensions began to to creep in as well at that time. Quite interesting how, you know, in every chapter you do talk about how uh, the conception of class, the, the streets were different, how tensions were more exposed between the working class people and the middle class African Americans. And, and this tension that you talked about, oh, this, um, this, let's say, urban renewal also made the social networks expand into other areas as well, right? Yeah. Th- I mean, at this point, uh, you had thousands of people displaced from the Lower Hill District. And uh, it's actually, it's really funny to read the records because they know that these number of people left and they can't figure out where they went uh, because they try to run all these surveys and send out all these social scientists to try to figure out, you know, where people went and what kind of housing was available. And it just, it just was, you know, kind of a mess. Um, But when the the Lower Hill District gets... uh, subjected to new urban renewal, um, the Black neighborhood of Homewood begins to op- open up. So Homewood and East Liberty are two other Black neighborhoods in the city of Pittsburgh that I talk about. And so what becomes interesting, and especially, again, in kind of speaking about this geographical argument about Pittsburgh, when Homewood and East Liberty open up, people don't stop coming back to the Hill District. Uh, the main black churches in the city are still in the Hill District. Uh, they still have friends and family in the Hill District. And so these social networks go with them and they begin to kind of create similar uh, environments in their new communities as they as they travel to these new uh, kind of emerging black neighborhoods. And uh, how about policing the streets? The idea is Again, there was tension, or let's say, difference between the working class and middle class people as how these streets should be policed. Yeah, I think one of the things that I find interesting is this debate of, you know, how do we change the system of policing? Do we do it from inside the system or outside the system? Um, becomes, you know, a question almost immediately. Um, there were you know, a couple of black police officers for a long time, they were not allowed to carry weapons. Uh, For a long time, they were not allowed to uh, police white areas. Um, So there were, you know, certainly difficulties. But these questions that I think we still have today about, you know, what we could call community-oriented policing uh, really begin in, you know, the early 20th century with the origins of policing. I mean, we've been having these arguments for the whole time policing has existed as a field. Uh, so I think that it's important to, you know, notice that Black communities were beginning to have these conversations as well. We're talking about things like police brutality, and we're talking about whether or not, you know, Black cops were reinforcing a system or they were helping to change the system. Like all of that was part of the conversation in the Hill District as well. Um how was social alliances formed across different classes? And um, how did these alliances incorporate middle-class African-Americans uh, and also line them alongside with the working class? So there wasn't always tension. There were times that they they could, uh, they were they were like, their concerns were aligned with one another. Can you talk about the idea of social alliances as well? Yeah, in the civil rights movement, um, I think one of the things that... Uh, I am also addressing in this book is the idea that there was a a break between civil rights and black power, as people sometimes call it. 
Um, in my mind, when we talk about the civil rights movement, a lot of what is happening there, those concerns that we associate more with the Black Power movement, uh, especially of economic um, justice, of human rights concerns, uh, some interest in what's happening internationally among African descended people, those concerns were all present in the working class well before um, the emergence of, you know, kind of classic civil rights. Um, and it's not to say that middle class and elite folks were not worried about those things as well, but they were really interested in formal institutional civil rights. So there was a conscious alliance. There was a choice made to go for formal civil rights, you know, go for the right to vote, go for access to public accommodations without segregation, go for educational opportunities. And so those kind of specific functions of government that should be open to all citizens, that was a decision that was made to kind of go in that direction. So that social alliance that basically says, we're going to focus on these things right now, uh, that was really what we see when we're looking at the kind of nonviolent direct action civil rights movement. It was actually access to jobs, you know, that it was economic justice in that sense. Um, let's go get jobs that pay enough money that we can support our family. Mm. Those kinds of questions and concerns. And so the organizations that were working to promote that kind of work in the city were looking at fair housing, were looking at educational access. And they were doing it together because they had common interests. So just like the social networks that had existed before, they were able to say, okay, I know these people that are working on this. Let's bring everybody together in a group so that we can start working together on these things because we have a common interest um, and we have a common you know, neighborhood. We can work together on this. And so that kind of alliance was really important and the strength of the movement came from the fact that you had a variety of classes and, you know, women, men, white people, black people working together um, to tackle, you know, inequality at that time. And uh, were there any formal organizations or institutions uh, established to, to, to tackle, for example, inequality or injustice? Oh, yeah. Like a bunch. I'd almost have to get you a list. Um, some of the ones that I could think of off the top of my head. So definitely the NAACP, uh, the National Urban League, uh, the Pittsburgh uh, branch of the Urban League was uh, pretty vocal and pretty powerful for a time. Um, there was the committee. What was it? Yeah, I'm going to blank on that. There was uh, the a fair housing group. Mm. There was, um, what is it? Negroes for Progress, something like that. There, there, there's a bunch. There many of them, right? Yeah. Yeah, there's, there's a whole a whole section in the book where I talk about a lot of the different organizations. Mm -hmm. and, and that's actually one of the things that were interesting because you had, of course, the formal organizations, but then you had informal organizations as well, where people would just call their neighbors and say, hey, I'm going to protest. Do you want to come? And that's kind of how uh, those informal um, things worked as well. Mm -hmm. And uh, these alliances... Later on, these alliances sort of declined and they broke down. So as why did it happen? And then how did tactics of the uh, middle-class African-Americans and their focus on formal mechanisms of power differed from the working classes um, tactics, whom mainly um, favored solidarity and collective action? Yeah, I think this is one of the things that I'm still wrestling with a bit in my head because it certainly is clear that these alliances begin to fracture and they fracture for for a lot of reasons um i think as with most cases in the civil rights movement if you look at uh when you see fractures you know a lot of it's ego a lot of it's um wanting to be the kind of central focus of the movement you want to be kind of named as the leader that's a bit of a problem um and for the middle class, uh, once they started to get access to some of the formal power structure to be able to, you know, call the mayor's office and get a response, um, they didn't need 
their alliance with the working class in the same way that they had previously. And for the working class, what that looked like was, you know, once housing started to open up um, and you could buy a house wherever you wanted for the middle class and elite, you suddenly were not choosing to live in neighborhoods with working class Black folks in the same way. So you start to see those social networks fracturing um, around the same time. And so the working class folks are sort of stuck with an informal network of power that no longer has the kind of wealth and access in it that it might have at a previous time. And so it gets a little bit more complicated to try to actually activate any of that power from solidarity in the same way because you no longer have that kind of engine of elite and middle class wealth uh, feeding back into the system. And it's um, when I read that section, it sounded very familiar to me as well. I mean, I think it, I could be uh, overgeneralizing, but I see that in like uh, protests for social justice, the privileged class or strata of society mainly favor the more, let's say, legal or the existing mechanisms of power, whereas the more underprivileged people would opt for uh, the same tactics such as, you know, collective action, strike, things that right. might not be considered, for example, legal in some frameworks. Like I said, even in my own country, I, I, I can see this is happening. And it's still sort of uh, well and alive, I guess, in African-American community. Yeah. And I, I think that for me, seeing this trajectory, we've seen it play out so many times. But the idea that, you know, the civil rights movement uh, either, well, one, I, I firmly disagree with this particular view, but the idea that like there was quote unquote good civil rights with Martin Luther King and then quote unquote bad civil rights uh, with black power. Um, I don't, I don't ascribe to that particular view for me, they had different goals and different views. Um, but seeing the kind of early evidence of the kind of arguments that black power was making in the twenties and thirties to me was so important because it isn't a kind of new thing that pops up in the mid sixties. It just sort of emerges uh, after a period of alliance. That was a tactic. I mean, we, I don't think we talk about the strategy of social change nearly as much as maybe we should, because as you said, I, I too see parallels in uh, anti-colonial movements, different kinds of social justice movements, um, globally. And I think that, you know, one, I read a lot of stuff from a lot of other places. And I think that that's something that makes this particular work stronger because I think it does have some applicability uh, more broadly than, uh, you know, sometimes what we, we try to do. But, you know, I'm trying to stick to my evidence, trying to stick to my sources, but I, I do too see um, parallels that I think would be great avenues of research for future folks. Mm. Um, and the working class people later on turn more to street-based violence. Uh, why did it happen? And was it only violent? And what were these, uh, let's say, tactics that were considered violent? And, and 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 you'll come up with this expression that you mentioned at the beginning of this interview: street democracy. I'd really love to know more about that as well. So the idea of street democracy really comes to me as the streets are a place where anyone can have and use their voice. So that idea of being able to kind of speak truth to power at the street level um, is where that thought of street democracy comes from. And so when talking about street violence, particularly what I find really interesting, and I, I borrowed this term from uh, my friends that study Irish agrarian outrage. Uh, this idea of an outrage is a really particular type of violence wherein it says that the government has broken a social contract, that they are not meeting the needs of the people the way that they need to be. And when that happens, the people 
erupt in an outrage. And so when you're talking about the riot that happens in Pittsburgh after uh, Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated in 1968, what's really fascinating is no one can agree what to call it. Uh, there really are all kinds of conversations about it. Um, many people call it uh, a disorder. They call it, um, some people call it a riot, but the police really object to that because a riot means they didn't have it under control. <laughs> so it really gets quite, quite hilarious the way that the conversation is going. But the people in the neighborhood were mad about Dr. King, of course, but they were more mad about the continuing blind eye that the city was turning to all kinds of social trouble uh, that was occurring in the Hill District. So lack of access to food, lack of access to jobs, uh, poor housing quality, uh, what they viewed as exploitative business practices by uh, folks who lived outside of the neighborhood, um, so interesting, all kinds of layers there to talk about. And what happens, I think, that is really fascinating to me is the working class doesn't necessarily say we're going to be violent on the streets. What they say is violence is not off the table as a tactic. And I think that's a pretty significant difference. Um, it's It tracks with exactly what was happening in the civil rights movement nationally, um, where many of the younger people were less and less committed to nonviolence as a tactic. So again, they were saying, we're not willing to take violence off the table. Um, if we are attacked, we will defend ourselves. Um, and both of those sides always functioned the whole time of the civil rights movement. A lot of people don't realize that. Um, so that kind of attitude from the working class that this kind of outrage on the street can be a viable tactic to let the city know that we are not okay, to let these business people that are price gouging and taking advantage of us know that it's not okay. What gets really interesting is middle-class folks tend to double down on nonviolent direct action, and they go the direction of saying, we are going to be you know, even more nonviolent, but at the same time, we're going to say, look at how dangerous the streets have gotten. We're going to go to City Hall and we're going to present our petition, you know, kind of there directly. And so they use a march to get down there, but it's also in this kind of formal structure of power of submitting their requests, you know, to the governor and trying to go through legal channels where many of the working class have gone like extra legal at that point. Um, so it's really interesting to sort of see how that happens. And through that process of that event that some people call a riot, it also becomes really clear that the middle class is no longer participating on the streets in the same way that they were they've now sort of acquiesced to major police and military presence on the street. Um, and they really have sort of throw the working class to the dogs a bit on um, here's, you know, if these people are in the streets and they are clearly doing something that is wrong and they are subject to any of the violence that the state throws at them at the same time. So it really is this interesting sort of switch and, you know, it's it's not something that I think working class activists in Pittsburgh at the time really saw coming. And how did the middle class respond to this use of violence, or at least the option to use violence um, as a means of creating public space? They seem to really step back from it. Um, the amount of articles in the Pittsburgh Courier that begin to talk about the dangers of street spaces uh, the need for cleanliness in street spaces. So that that begins to be the the main rhetoric is that the streets are a dangerous and degenerate sort of place. And if you are a again respectable middle class person, you will spend your time in these places that are structured and safe and maintained by city government. 
the assassination of Martin Luther King was, I guess, uh, uh, an important moment in the way it impacted the social networks at Hill's district. So how did the social network respond to, to the assassination of Martin Luther King? Yeah, this was one of the things that when I originally started this project, I had this idea that the kind of moment, if I could pick one, that changed the Hill district was urban renewal. Uh, that's really what a lot of the literature said, right? It's, you know, you build a highway through a neighborhood and that's going to really have a significant effect. And when I was doing my oral history interviews, um, that was the thing that came up the most clearly is in asking sort of when the neighborhood that they remembered changed, almost every single person I talked to said it wasn't urban renewal. It was the riot. And I found that to be a really interesting uh, moment. And and many of them were very, very careful to say, you know, if you want to get this story right, you have to understand the importance of this event, this riot in uh, our in a story. And so it real this is what sort of finally fractured the social networks, I think, in some ways, because those folks who could leave the Hill District did. Um, so if you were middle class and elite and you could, you know, afford to buy housing elsewhere and the housing had started to open up, um, that became an avenue um, for you. Um, many of the shops uh, never reopened after uh, the riot that happened. And it really was just uh, a way where, think of how I want to say this, after that point, middle-class and elite folks did not need working-class people in their social network anymore. They had alternative networks of power that they had access to at that point, uh, in part because the city really wanted to, I think, save face. Uh, they, you know, put a few Black people on uh, city, you know, council types of things. Um, but that was really what shifted a lot of the neighborhood uh, in ways that they did not feel like they recovered from in the same way that they felt that they had recovered from urban renewal. Um, as a last question, the past few years, we have been we have seen these renewed efforts by African American community and generally by working class people as well to demand social uh, justice, economic justice, racial justice. So in their efforts to get, to their rights, do you see any parallels between the techniques they use with the ones um, in, in Pittsburgh within the period that you studied in the book? Yeah, so the whole epilogue of my book um, is called Whose Streets Are Streets? And the fact that that chant is something that, you know, developed in Ferguson, Missouri after the murder of Mike Brown, that, you know, it struck me as something that I felt would have been said by the people in the Hill District that I was writing about. Uh, there are there are so many parallels, I think. And when you actually look now at activism that has continued in Pittsburgh, um, they had a, a number of cases uh, a couple of years ago um, of police brutality in the city of Pittsburgh as well. Um, I also won't get started on the land. They have they have basically tanks that they drive through black neighborhoods in Pittsburgh for crowd control, apparently. Um, so there are still, I think, issues that need that need to be addressed. But I think that is what has been so interesting to me about doing this work is that I do see so many parallels, not only um, between efforts that are happening today, um, but also I think in many other cities. I think if you were looking at almost any Rust Belt city in the United States, in the urban north, um, I wonder if they wouldn't have a Wiley Avenue of their own. Uh, so for me, I think it's really interesting. Um, and I'd love to hear from anybody who's doing this kind of work, if they're seeing similar patterns uh, where they're working. Um, but it is an absolute pleasure to work in Pittsburgh. Uh, I really do think that there are so many interesting parallels to the movement for Black Lives uh, and the Black Lives Matter uh, work that's happening today and just the efforts that are happening globally to get economic justice. I think 
I think about the fight for 15 um, and some of the work that's happening around labor organizing right now as well. And so much of that is happening in the streets. And I think that there's just a space that we don't think about as having politics, as having a public space sort of vibe. Um, but I think that they're a really important uh, place to study and to think about. Uh, thank you very, very much for taking the time to talk with us on New Books Network. Really enjoyed talking to you and really enjoyed this book. And I strongly advise our listeners to pick up the book, go through the book and read it. It's a, it, it's, it's, you're writing about the period of history, but it still resonates very, very vividly with, with, with us today as well. Thank you so much.